India reacts strongly to global comments on democratic freedoms here. How much should the government really worry about these comments and what is their likely impact on foreign policy? Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. This is episode 69. Now, with increasing regularity, India is facing comments from abroad, expressing concern and criticizing the government for failing to keep its commitments on democratic freedoms, religious freedoms, media freedoms, and so on. Just in the past week, there have been a number of such statements, and that's why on Worldview, we're going to discuss these for you. Many of these statements have already elicited very strong reactions from the Ministry of External Affairs, and that's one of the reasons why they must be taken more seriously. The first, from the United Nations, the High Commission for Human Rights. They had come out against the detention of three activists who had criticized the government for its 2002 Gujarat riots investigation. Now, the Ministry of External Affairs issued a statement calling the comments by the UN OHCHR, as it's called, those comments the MEA said were unwarranted. They were an interference in India's judicial system. Next came the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, the USCIRF, as it's called. It, on its Twitter handle, tweeted three comments on India, asking for India to be designated as a country of particular concern by the U.S. State Department. It referred to the detentions of the human rights advocates I just spoke about, also the detention of a fact-checking website founder. The reaction came straight away from the MEA. It said the commission was motivated, the concerns were biased and showed a severe lack of understanding of India and its constitutional framework its plurality and its democratic ethos. So the MEA really uh, bringing some very strong wording to its reaction there. Next came the reaction from U.S. congressmen, four U.S. Congress representatives, Ilan Omar, a famous U.S. congresswoman there, as well as three others introduced a resolution. It's called 1196. It's been introduced in the U.S. House. And that will, quote, seek to, if it's passed, will seek to condemn human rights violations and violations of international religious freedom in India, including, and it was pretty specific, including those that target Muslims, Christians, Sikhs, Dalits, Adivasis, and other religious and cultural minorities. Now, there's another resolution this week that came from another congressman, a congressman from California, Juan Vargas. He is one of the signatories to 1196 as well. And he seeks to commemorate activist and Jesuit priest Tan Swami, who died, remember, in police custody in India last July. The government has not yet responded to the resolutions coming up in the US House. Remember in 2019, the strongest reaction really so far, External Affairs Minister S. Jay Shankar had actually refused to attend a US House Foreign Affairs Committee meeting where a Democratic Congresswoman, originally of Indian origin, Pramila Jaipal, was actually present. as She had introduced a resolution calling on India to restore internet freedoms in Jammu and Kashmir and to release political prisoners there. So that was the MEA's reaction the last time a resolution was brought about. We're still awaiting this time. Then there was the U.S. ambassador at large for religious freedoms, Rashad Hussain. He's also of Indian origin, actually, and is a U.S. government official. He addressed a conference in Washington saying that India is even at the risk of seeing a genocide here. Listen in to what he said. We have a situation now where the Holocaust Museum in the United States has an early warning project. As part of that early warning project, they have designated India as the number two country in the world at risk of mass killings. 
And when you do the, you look at some of the research, and we see, that, of course, the research from Indian and Greg and others, you'll see that uh, India, of course, now has a, a citizenship law that's on the books. Uh, we've had open calls for genocide in India. We've had attacks on churches. We've had demolitions of homes. We've had, it was mentioned earlier today, that the ban on hijab. We've got rhetoric that's openly being used that's dehumanized toward the people. So much to the extent that one minister referred to Muslims as termites. So when you have these ingredients, it's important that we take note and we work to address uh, the challenges that we face. Those comments by Ambassador Hussain were a follow-up to an international religious freedom report that had been issued by the U.S. Secretary of State, Lincoln, as well as Ambassador Hussain at the beginning of June. Now that the MEA has responded to, they slammed the U.S. government calling it the practice of vote bank politics at the international stage. So the MEA straight away referred to the IRFA report by the U.S. Secretary of State, but there have been others they reacted to. The German foreign ministry came out this week, said it is concerned about the arrest of the fact checker we had mentioned, his name is Mohamed Zubair, adding that the embassy, the German embassy is monitoring the situation in India, coordinating with the European Union on this as well. Here is what the MEA said this week when asked about the German statement. Look, in itself, it's a domestic issue. But uh, you mentioned about the comments by uh, you know, certain countries. Uh, let, me, let me emphasize that there is a judicial process underway in this case. And I don't think it would be appropriate for me or anyone else to comment on a case that is subjudice. I think the uh, you know, independence of our judiciary is well recognized. And uninformed comments are unhelpful and should be avoided. And then um, we also saw this week a UK-hosted international conference on the freedom of religion and belief. Now, interestingly, India was not mentioned directly at the conference, but neither was India among the 30 countries that attended, including the US, many European countries, Japan, and so forth. In addition, reports now suggest that India actually put off a visit by British Minister Tariq Ahmed, who was hosting the conference, involved in its uh, organization, and he was due to visit Delhi in June to invite India to join the conference. But his visit was then rescheduled, now supposed to happen sometime at the end of July. So the question comes up, why is this interest in India's domestic matters increasing recently? Now, as India grows in prominence on the international stage, a growing number of events in India catching international attention. While earlier this was primarily concerned about hate crimes in India carried out by different groups, since 2019 in particular, what we are seeing is the concerns have been about government decisions, judicial processes, for example, the reorganization of Jammu and Kashmir and the suspension of the internet and arrests that followed, the Citizenship Amendment Act, or CA, the Farm Bill and the action against protesters there, the hijab ban this year, the use of bulldozers against protesters, the arrests of activists, journalists, and human rights advocates. These are all coming much more onto the international stage. The second reason is really in the United States, the Democratic administration under President Biden has definitely taken a more traditionally proactive stance on global human rights. As a result, even during the Blinken Jaishankar meetings we saw earlier this year, we saw references to human rights concerns coming through. This was a bit of a surprise for India. As the US makes human rights part of its foreign policy, more and more other partner countries like the UK, European Union members, Canada, Germany, basically Western democracies are also becoming more vocal on the issue. One of Mr. Biden's initiatives, remember, is the Democracy Summit he held in December 2021, 
Now, in December 2022, the U.S. plans a bigger summit, and it's going to call to account, it says, countries for the commitments they've made last year. In fact, the British FORB, Freedom of Religion or Belief Summit, that we just saw held in the UK is also seen really as a precursor to the December summit. This was a ministerial conference leading up to the December summit. The third reason is that in the past decade, the government has acted against international NGOs under what is called the Foreign Contribution Regulatory Act. We've been seeing reports on this on the Hindu.com over the FCRA. Now, they stopped foreign fundings for different causes in India. And this has led to the shutdown of many worldwide, really well-known international NGOs. Some of the names include Amnesty International, Greenpeace, Human Rights Watch, Compassion International, Oxfam, so many others. In fact, about 12,000 NGOs in India and all have lost their licenses to receive foreign funding as of 2022. Now, some of these decisions have been reversed, as in the case of Ford Foundation some years ago, the Missionaries of Charity, originally founded by Mother Teresa. But for the rest, the fact that they now operate from overseas is actually making it more likely, not less, that they will express their concerns while they are abroad, and particularly to the governments in the countries that they are based. So we're hearing from those governments more and more because the NGOs are giving them that kind of information on their concerns. Fourth, there is timing to all of this. There is an upcoming review of Indian human rights records at the UN Human Rights Council in 2022. It's called the UPR, the Universal Periodic Review. It's expected to begin in November 2022, and India is due to give its own report at the end of August on itself. As a result, the vocal concerns being expressed in Western capitals may actually increase as the rest of the year gets underway. Fifth, there is a growing interest in human rights in India, which is also linked to the growing polarization in the global world order. As the US and Europe and other allies put, pit themselves against the Russia-China combined, uh, really making it a fight between democracies and authoritarian regimes. This is how the narrative is building. In the past few years, remember, the US even tried to turn the G7 into a D10 instead of 10 democracies with large economies as a counter. That didn't get underway, but the Quad certainly is a coalition of Indo-Pacific democracies. This is what led to a statement of the G7 in Germany just now called the Resilient Democracy Statement. That was actually even signed by outreach countries. India was a special invitee and Prime Minister Modi signed on to that resolution on democratic resilience, really, uh, which is something India will be held accountable for. Finally, the concerns are being amplified by Pakistan. Given tense ties between the two countries for the past few years, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, remember, would devote much of his UNGA assembly speech to India, talking about the ruling party's ideology, about Islamophobia on the rise in India. Uh, Pakistan even hosted Ilan Omar shortly before the US Congresswoman came back to the US, put her resolution out. And Pakistan has been holding, pushing for India to be held accountable at the UN Human Rights Council, especially after the OHCHR brought out a report on Jammu and Kashmir that has been very critical of New Delhi's actions. The irony, really, that Pakistan has also not come across very well in that report. There is also one more aspect to this, which is really not part of foreign policy, but it is worth uh, paying some attention to, and that is the profile of Indian Americans around the world. As the diaspora really increases in its significance, the importance of its members in different countries, they are going to take a greater interest in what they see as their original country or the country that they have origins in, which is India. And that is another reason we are hearing much more from 
people of Indian origin who are now in politics in the US, in the UK, uh, and other countries than perhaps we did before. So let's just tell you what New Delhi should watch out for. What can really go wrong if uh, these concerns are actually put on paper and made into something more? And there are very specific legal sort of frameworks in which the US and its allied countries operate when it comes to talking about human rights in other parts of the world. Of course, India is not the first country to come across, come above the radar over here. Um, so some of the things to look out for. One, ties with the US could deeply be impacted. This could become a bilateral issue with any of the countries that work against India. In the US in specific, there is the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. That is the basis for all these comments that you're hearing because under it, the US president himself is required to annually review the status of religious freedom in every country in the world and then designate each country where the government is involved or engaged in particularly severe violations of religious freedom as a country of particular concern, a CPC. So the US president is mandated to do this. Present, there are 10 countries on that list. This is as of November 2021, Myanmar, China, Eritrea, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. Uh, there's also a special watch list of four countries, Algeria, Comoros, Cuba, and Nicaragua over there. So you can see the kind of company uh, that the CPC countries really find themselves in. Uh, the second is in addition, the USCIRF that we just spoke about can also recommend sanctions against specific officials under this International Religious Freedom Act. Remember in 2005, something unprecedented happened. The then Bush administration decided to revoke Prime Minister Narendra Modi's visa. He was then, of course, Gujarat Chief Minister. It revoked that visa under what is called Section 212A2G of the US Immigration and Nationality Act. That's a separate act. That makes any foreign government official, quote, who was responsible or directly carried out at any time particularly severe violations of religious freedom. And it makes such an official ineligible for a visa to the United States. Now, two things are very important. One, that at the time, Gujarat Chief Minister Modi was actually the only person, and still is, the only person actually sanctioned under this particular provision so far. But the second is that the visa revocation hasn't gone away. Prime Minister Modi travels to the US and can travel at any time as a head of government. But that original visa revocation has still to be actually put away by the United States. Then there are what are called global Magnitsky sanctions. These work for accountability for human rights violations worldwide and are named after Sergei Magnitsky. He was a Russian tax advisor and whistleblower who was arrested, beaten up in custody and he died of his injuries in 2009. Since his death, you know, it has been sparked an international campaign to put financial sanctions against officials involved in human rights violations. The United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, all the EU countries all have Magnitsky sanctions in some shape or form. They have passed laws that allow for this. And it's called the Global Magnitsky Act for that reason. About 300 individuals from about and entities from about 40 countries have already been designated under these. Most of them are from China, Russia, Saudi Arabia. Uh, last year, the US also put Bangladeshi police officials, including a rapid action battalion, anti-terror force, onto this list as well. So this is another legal framework on human rights violations. It is also necessary to watch out for the economic impact of these sanctions or designations. As private companies in the United States and Europe have begun to follow their foreign policies, 
the foreign policies of the companies they belong, countries they belong to. During the Trump administration, for example, we saw many U.S. companies pulling out of China over concerns over Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and other human rights violations unilaterally. During the Russia-Ukraine war, after that began in February this year, we've seen dozens of Western companies pulling out of Russia just on their own, without being required to, amidst worries that human rights violations can actually lead to MNCs working there being penalized back home. Remember, from McDonald's to uh, MasterCard, we've seen so many companies just shut shop in Russia. Finally, and this has to be remembered for overall perspective, Western foreign policy is fickle. There have been flip-flops in the past decade over Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, other countries that show that when ties with the West are well and good, human rights concerns are often brushed to the background. But the reverse happens. With India too, while India's ties with the US and Europe are gaining strength and the need for India as a bulwark state against China and the Indo-Pacific remains, such laws, sanctions, and human rights concerns may not make as much of a difference. But when bilateral ties are in trouble, that's when we see many of these concerns come out much more. Clearly, while the government is correct, that international concerns are interference into India's internal affairs, it must be remembered that India is a signatory to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And the government has a duty to ensure human rights, religious freedoms, media freedoms to its people. Eventually, any impact of global concerns on India's foreign policy will be transitory. It could change. But the impact of the government's actions on its people, its fulfillment of commitments to standing up for these rights that we spoke about domestically, is permanent and lasting, as will be the impact on India's goodwill in the world as a pluralistic, inclusive democracy and not a reactive authoritarian regime. So India does have to take a look at these concerns quite seriously. Let's get you some reading recommendations. And I just mentioned the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's important that you read it because India is a signatory. You can read it online at the UN website. There's the link, the UN.org, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Or you could get a book with more context to it. Uh, there's one version which is quite interesting that is an intro introduction by John Pinfold and a foreword written by famous lawyer and activist Amal Clooney. Uh, then there is something a little more academic by U.S.-based professor and expert. He's called Johannes Morsing. He has written several books, including the latest called Article by Article, The Universal Declaration of Human Rights for a New Generation. He's also written about the UDHR uh, and the Holocaust, uh, what its challenges are from uh, religion and other such things. Uh, there's also some delightful history about the UDHR in a book about how the entire declaration was written. Not many know it was the U.S. First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt in 1948, who really chaired the committee on producing the draft. The book itself is called A World Made New, Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Then we see the, in India, the National Human Rights Commission has put out several books. They're also available online on human rights in India and how to educate yourself. You just have to go to the website of the NHRC to download them. Uh, one book I find very interesting because it puts in perspective how India changed after Gandhi. It's called India After Gandhi, The History of the World's Largest Democracy. And this is by Ramachandra Gua. It's a classic. I'm sure you've read it. But if you haven't, please do put it on your reading list. Then we have two books. These are by activists. So that's the disclaimer. You may not agree with everything they write, but they're activists interested in India. One is called Healing India, Upholding the Universal Declaration 
This is about the shutting down of Amnesty International in India by Mark O'Doherty. Uh, there's also Chris Hershey's A New Passage to Modern India, the struggle for universal human rights in India vis-a-vis -vis its transformational economic growth. Now that makes it, it gives it a new angle as well. Then there are for those who want to read about how the US has really approached and even weaponized human rights internationally. There's a, a James Peck, who's written a book called Ideal Illusions, how the US government co-opted human rights or what is called the American Empire Project. Uh, there's also Walter McDougall, very famous historian in the US who wrote Promised Land Crusader State. American encounter with the world since 1776 that looks at the conflicted duality between what's going on in the United States and how it portrays itself to the world and tells the world really how it should in some way mirror its image. I mentioned the Magnitsky Act for you. If you would like to read about Sergei Magnitsky, there's a 2015 biography by Bill Browder, uh, which is very interesting. It's called Red Notice, the true story of high finance, murder and one man's fight for justice. Browder has also written a follow-up book about Putin's Russia in 2021. Finally, and always worth reading, and I've recommended her before when we spoke about populism, is Anne Applebaum's Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. This is a book that's really a book for our times and well worth reading. We hope you enjoy all the reading recommendations and join us again here on Worldview from the team. Thanks for watching.